Welcome to the Human Centered Leadership Podcast with me, your host, Kulmahe. I have worked in the leadership space for three decades, and now I work with organizations and leaders to develop powerful cultures of high value and performance that is built all around their people. We will interview leaders from around the world and at the very top end of their game to explore what emotional intelligence in practice actually looks like and the benefits that it could bring to any team. This is a movement to transform the way that we see leadership and to create powerful cultures where people feel seen, heard, valued and appreciated and consequently perform to the very best. Why don't you join the movement and subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to click on notifications to stay up to date with all new content. Welcome to another episode where I get to speak to incredible people from around the world. Uh, and we have gone around the world on, uh, on today's uh, episode. Um, this particular episode, we have been trying to arrange for about, about 12 months. It was about a year ago that uh, I met my next guest, who is Dr. Mark Davis. Now, Mark is an incredible human being. He's got so much behind him. And I have, I, I literally have waited for this conversation. And we actually met Mark, if I remember, at, uh, we're, we're both in the same leadership fellowship and we were at a dinner together and we happened to sit next to each other. We, we, the moment you'd heard, I, I'm into emotional intelligence. And then I heard what your specialism was. That was it. You know, it's a start of a beautiful relationship, as I say. Well, absolutely. And I think, uh, um, our, our hosts knew of our interests and uh, strategically put us together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think there was a bigger hand at play. Uh, so listen, Mark, um, why am I so excited for you to come on this podcast? I need to let the, 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 the listeners and the viewers know. Uh, so you're the Dean of International Programs uh, at the University of West Alabama, which is like so, so impressive in its own right. But actually, it's the part that the, the part that really uh, sort of excites me is that you're a professor of psycholo- psychology, and you have a specific interest in research around social psychology, which is when we nail it down. That's sort of my sweet spot. So, do you want to just explain to people what social psychology is all about? I'm a firm believer. So, psychology in general is the study of thoughts, behaviors, and I'm going to add emotions into that because it can be slightly different than the rest, but thoughts and behaviors. And uh, social psychology looks at it in the social world. So, I think honestly, it's, it's the purest form of it because we can't escape our social world. We're constantly being influenced by outside forces, and uh, we have to interact with the social worlds to function. Holy. Yeah. So uh, it, it's the it's the study of thoughts, behaviors, and emotion in, in the social world. Uh, ultimately, the study of emotions in the social world. So why why is emotion why are emotions so important? Do you feel that we need to study them to that that? Well, degree? I think uh, I mean we've been looking at emotions, uh, philosophers. I, mean, I think we've we've studied emotions and informally since the. the the existence of humanity, uh, perhaps even further than that, because I mean, if you if you've ever read uh, um, Darwin's uh, his work on the expression of emotion in man and animals, uh, it was just mm-hmm. an extension of the things that came before him, and we continue that um, throughout the research of emotion from uh, William James uh, to uh, um, to Lazarus, and looking at uh, applied or um, application to it in appraisal. To, to kind of modern neuroscience through Antonio Damasio, uh, we we oh. we 
we look at this in so many different ways. Uh, even today, Lisa Feldman Barrett is a, is a massive researcher in this, looking at kind of a constructionist view of, of emotion, uh, how we in, incorporate emotion in from the social world. Uh, that's tr what true emotion is, and it only I have no idea what your emotion is. You have no idea what my emotion is. We share language scripts and cultural scripts that might link them together, but there's different views that I, I think um, kind of converge to, to give us what we have today. We're looking at the neuroscience and the influence of the social world on, on what we experience. And I think that's important for us to understand, to be fully functional, whether you're a leader or an employee or, or an athlete or just a husband, a wife, a brother, a sister, functioning in, in, the, in the social yeah. world. It's so important that we understand our emotions and the emotions of others around us. So, you know, I, I love the fact that you've, you've taken me into this area of emotions because, you know, of course, my passion is emotional intelligence and, and this is right at the heart of everything that you are talking about. But, you know, very often the, the conversations I have with people uh, around emotions, particularly in the, in the world of leadership and, and certain sectors of industry and where emotions are, are not necessarily seen as being a strength. They, they are very often seen as being a bit too soft, a bit too woolly and a bit too sort of woo-woo up there. Uh, and how, does they, how do they really impact on my ability to lead or my ability to drive performance in my organisation? What is your research shown around emotions by, by understanding emotions to a better level how can we then utilize that to drive better performance, individual or collective performance? Well, I think, I mean, even from um, the early philosophers and, and the kind of the Hellenistic view, that emotion was something to be, to be uh, ruled over by logic. And we think that's uh, something uh, far more powerful. And I think some of that still exists today, especially in business, is that you cannot be driven by emotion. Um, although so much of what we do is guided by emotion. I mean, Emotion motivates behaviors. It doesn't always produce them, but it certainly yes. motivates behaviors. And we can't get around that. So having control of that, not overreacting, uh, it takes some level of internal awareness. Some people are just naturally more calm, uh, um, and, but some people learn it. Some people can't control it. Uh, and so there's some variation there. And the, 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 the act of understanding your own emotion and, and how you react to emotion competent stimuli around us. Yeah. So a couple of things come to my mind as you're talking right there. There's a, there's an old saying that, well, I don't know if it's an old saying, but it's a saying that I've heard an awful lot of in sales. And it's very often uh, said that uh, you, you buy with your heart and then you justify with logic. Uh, and that's sort of what you're, what you're talking about there. Uh, and I very often talk about, you know, the limbic, the limbic decisions that we make, you know, the limbic part of our brain is that emotional part of the brain where also the fear reside, the fear receptors also reside. Uh, and then the prefrontal cortex, which is the logical part of our brain. Uh, and, and there's a great book on that, isn't there? The Chimp Paradox, uh, written by Professor Stephen Peters. So in essence, you know, in everyday language, that's sort of what we're talking about. That Often that we, we think that we're making logical decisions, but actually those decisions are driven by our emotions to some degree. You can do the research that so we'll use, use buying a car, for example, a, a large financial purchase, more today than it has been. Uh, and, uh, and so you have to, um, you'll do the research and, and, and ultimately find the best car for you and for your, your finances. But 
when it comes down to it, like, do you want the red one? Do you want the black one? Yeah. What yes, kinds of amenities true. do you want within it that you don't really need, but you want? And so you're definitely guided by your emotion. And advertising, marketing feeds on this and presents us with those, yes, you need this and you want this and we can give it to you. And this is better than the others for these reasons. Uh, but ultimately, so um, we have systematic processing, certainly, but we are guided so much by heuristics um, for, for many different things, that those emotional sides of things to make decisions uh, because we are, for lack of a, a more detailed response, busy. Uh, the things around us, whether we're actually busy, we're busy. Um, uh, I'm sure I could be off my phone more and doing things, uh, but uh, we have <laughs> cognitive loads that make it hard for us to be truly 100% logical all the time. So emotion is always there. You know, the more I think about this, the more the, the more it just sort of resonates. And I, you know, I work in this area as you do. You research this area, but even then, I'm I surprise I'm surprised by a, a new level of awareness. I mean, I, the, the the thought never even crossed my mind about choosing the color. And of course, that's an emotional decision, right? It's not a logical decision at all, unless you're going to say, "I want a black car because I'm only going to drive it at night, and it will be camouflaged." And that would be, therefore, a logical decision. Now, sometimes we have to strip away the emotion from our decision-making process. So, you know, if I can take you back to, as you know, my, my background is in policing. And uh, uh, as a senior police officer, very often I was the person that was on call. Uh, so if we had a serious incident in the middle of the night, I would be the person that would be uh, telephoned as the what we call the gold commander here, which is the most senior uh, commander operationally. I'd be called up uh, as the gold commander by the control room. Uh, and I would have to make instantaneous decisions that could be def that were defensible, you know, and I'd be looking like two years later, could I defend this decision in court? And in order for me to make that decision, I had to be able to extrapolate the emotions from it and look at it very cognitively. So <clears throat> we worked uh, with a, a decision making model, which I still use today, uh, that allows me to make decisions that are clear, rational, thought through decisions without emotions uh, sort of penetrating that decision making process. But actually, sometimes that, that is only for, I, I believe, that's only for like the big, powerful decisions that need to be made. But most of the time, actually having emotions involved in your decision is. Well, it happens more than we think think it does. Anyway, it's very subconscious sometimes, uh, but sometimes it's necessary, don't you think? Your experience guided those logical decisions. Think about the person who's been on the force for um, for a month or or their first day. They don't have that experience, and given the same information, they can't process it as quickly as well. They have to be guided by some level of they might say instinct or or gut feeling, and which is emotion. So uh, if you have more experience, more base knowledge, you can potentially process the information faster and be able to make a more logical decision. But we, we, how, how many times when you did those decision-making uh, tasks did you have all of the information you wished you had? Never really. There, there were always information gaps. And, you know, part of the process was, was what is the information that I've got to hand and what are the gaps? And what can I do to fill in those gaps as best as possible? So it's very logical, very cognitive 
uh, my thinking was. Yeah. And I mean, without all the information, we have to make leaps sometimes and you can do your best. And it sounds like the strategy um, for the decision making task helped with that. Uh, but uh, emotion is always there. You know, I, I knew I knew that this conversation was going to be so meaty. <laughs> when we finally got together, uh, uh, you know, I'm like, I've got a thousand questions buzzing around in my head, but I want to try and bring it to leadership or organizations. And when I talk about leadership, Mark, I'm talking about leadership, not necessarily in the, in the sense of a leader in an organization. It could be leader in this community or whatever else, you know, whole concept, the widest possible concept of leadership. How do you think it is, how do you think our ability to regulate our emotions, um, how can that improve our ability to lead? Or by the, on, on the flip side of the coin, how is it and why is it so important sometimes to have emotions in our leadership? Well, I'll start with the second one. Um, having and showing emotion in leadership means you're human. You can relate to the others. And so I think any good leader has the ability to relate to those around them uh, at any level, uh, at those that we, we might consider the very best were the most relatable, uh, it may be very distant, but uh, it could be your immediate boss or the CEO, those that could yeah. seem human and sometimes uh, make mistakes and acknowledge that and, and understand uh, what hopefully what makes them think and act and what emotions they have, but the emotions I'm feeling. Um, I just had a conversation yesterday that um, management uh, if they've never been in the trenches, oftentimes have difficulty relating to those emotions that people who work for them understand. And so if they don't have that, what are they doing to gain some of that knowledge? Are they, are they going in and talking with them? Are they meeting with them? Having, having that, that relationship, uh, certainly those who've been in the trenches and understand what's going on uh, at various levels tend to do better because they have more empathy and more understanding and the, and the emotions and the stressors that are being experienced. Uh, but uh, I think not every leader has to go through that. I mean, I look at um, top football managers. Not every one of them has played at the top level and understands what the athletes are going through, but they certainly understand it, have gained that understanding uh, because they understand the players around them. And how much have we heard? It's, it's, it's person management uh, at that very top level. Um, and so but that happens at any level, uh, understanding the people understanding yourself and how you can react to situations uh, logically and emotionally when things are difficult. Things when things are very easy, um, this isn't this isn't hard work. Uh, but maybe motivating those to push through easy times, to challenge themselves, to advance the, not only themselves but the others around them, and, and maybe the company or the organization. But uh, when things get difficult. How do they manage that and keep people motivated mm -hmm. and on task? And it may be, I mean, maybe as simple as having that small conversation with someone who doesn't look like they're having a good day and uh, either giving them space and allowing them space or asking. Um, I don't know how many times leadership maybe is distant, um, but that's not good leadership. I think having some, some emotional connection to those who are around us uh, makes us leaders. And we don't have to be best friends, friends going to the pub all every, every Friday or whatever. But I think having that emotional connection to those around us uh, 
is as important as the 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 logical side the um and and because it bonds us and we are humans and we are a social creature and having that understanding i think really is what defines good leaders um whether they're de defined as a leader or they those around them see them uh, see out that person as a leader they're emotionally aware and you mentioned emotional intelligence they understand themselves and they try to understand those around them yeah i, I think you're absolutely right and and i and i have been thinking for a while that um, i actually think this whole ability to connect with other human beings at a human level uh, to understand your, both your own emotions and the emotions of other people and the ability to build relationships and in order for us to do that, we need to have all the things like empathy and rapport building and all of these skill sets. But I actually think that's become much, much more important uh, post-COVID times. Because I think when, when we went through COVID, as, as, a, as a race, as a human race, we went through a significant change in uh, the way that we saw the world and the paradigms in which we exist, what we used to think was important to us is no longer important to us. And we, many of us had this realisation that actually our relationships with other people are valued, are important, and we need to make more of an effort. And consequently, what happened was that when people went back into their workplace, whether that was virtual or in person, if the organisation hasn't shifted its thinking from po of pre-COVID times to, to post-COVID times, if it's still the same organisation, many other people thinking, actually, this isn't the place I want to be. I don't feel valued. I don't feel uh, psychologically safe. I don't feel heard or appreciated, etc., etc. Uh, and consequently, they either left that organisation or opted out simply by not working to the the, the maximum um, potential. Uh, and so we had these new this new phraseology come about, didn't we? Like the great resignation, which is you know, unprecedented attrition that we've seen in the global uh, uh, employment markets or, you know, um, quiet quitting where people just work to the minimum standard. They didn't have the courage maybe to, to leave the organisation, but they thought, man, do you know what? I'm only going to work to the minimum standard and nobody can do anything about that. And that's a fairly unhealthy picture, but that's as a consequence of an organisation or leaders not understanding that the world has shifted on its axis now and people have got different priorities. So, you know, what what advice could we give to those organisations or those leaders who are perhaps still reticent to move forward and understand that the world has uh, changed? I think uh, a big part of this is um, obviously we distance and uh, technology has allowed us to do wonderful things like this uh, where you're interviewing me uh, thousands of miles away and, and, and what looks like a very intimate setting in a conversation. Yeah. Uh, having, um, you know, we realize we can be away and during COVID, we, we lack those social interactions. Um, I know I'm being inside. Uh, we had hopefully those around us who were closest to us, family, people we were locked in with, some variation of that, but that wasn't always the case and we needed it. We needed some sort of, of social interaction. Uh, understanding emotion. I think uh, kids, specifically school-age kids, desperately needed that. And they, when they were not able to go in person, uh, they're emotionally learning as much as the ABCs and mathematics and, yeah. and how to socially interact. And um, we're seeing the results of that as they progress through school. Uh, 
and hopefully they can gain that back. Um, certainly, we can we can do tactics, and there are things that that are designed to help kind of that emotional learning along with everything else. But the same would go for the the boss or the manager or the CEO who wants to advance their company. Is that having that social interaction uh, now forcing your 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 uh, your workers to come back because that's what you think it should be done. I think um, I think we all value our, our opinion and our, our thoughts uh, to be heard, and that's a big part of this. Is at whatever level, making sure that you feel heard. Um, and when we didn't get that, we were like, "Go home. You have to go home now. You have to go back to work. There's yeah. no choice in that. There's no value in that." Uh, when we um, and I've seen this at different levels. Uh, when you do the work because you enjoy doing it, uh, you're not doing it for recognition, but it's really nice to get it. Uh, now, not, some people work to, in order to get recognition. I get that as some external reward for this. Um, but so many of us, if we get to a position that we like, we do it because we want to do it. Um, but that's not every job. We, so having some level of external reward, of recognition for the work that you do. Now, I'm not saying every Friday you get rewarded for doing your job. Uh, no, like some interest and motivation to, to go beyond that uh, for, for yourself and then hopefully for the organization that you're working within. Um, but having, and I think more, the successful companies do this, is that they value the employee. Uh, we're so taught that um, corporations and organizations are after the bottom line or, or working for the investor, not the employee. But who ultimately... Yep. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Who ultimately is generating the revenue? It's the employee, uh, and if they're not, and most most organizational budgets, you know, eighty percent of their budget is is around the wages for that employee. So it's the the employee is the greatest investment that any organization make or most organizations make, and consequently, it is that investment that we need to protect them. But often it's seen as soft skills, right? It's seen as soft skills and it's seen as a, a nice to have as opposed to a need to have. Uh, so it slips down in that order of priority uh, for many of the top leaders. So they're driven by the, uh, the KPIs, the key performance indicators, the performance targets, the sales targets. Uh, and they are the visual representation of success for those leaders. And as a, as a, as a, byproduct of that what you can end up doing is losing sight of the most valuable product uh, or, or, or or part of your organization which which are your employees they are the ones that are delivering that performance for you my early motivations uh i went to uh, i finished my undergrad at the university of, or excuse me western washington university in bellingham washington and after living in uh, southern california my father was air force and uh, he retired there fairly early on. And uh, um, so I, I grew up in Southern California and uh, uh, you just live with the interactions you have around you. And then I went up to Western Washington yeah. and saw a very different group around me and uh, um, took a class in social psychology and loved it. And uh, the professor used a book called The Social Animal and it's not written like a traditional textbook. And uh, I purchased the book uh, when I arrived to campus about a week and a half before classes started. And read it all uh, before school started and uh, found it fascinating. And I still use that book when I teach social psychology. Uh, had oh, the pleasure wow. of meeting him and, and having him sign it at a, um, a, a, the Association of Psychological Science conference years back. And uh, 
still, yeah, absolutely love it. Uh, Elliot Aronson um, is the, the individual who wrote that. But he, um, that inspired me for social psychology. Um, but I, at the same time, I, I took a class on biopsychology at the end of my career and really was fascinated with, uh, with the brain. And, and in our processing of information, uh, specifically emotion, and pursued that in mm. graduate school. So it was that blending, this um, social psycho um, physiology, and and the and um, this, and through emotion, we were doing uh, what's called cardiovascular impedance, where we're looking at uh, reactions, physiological reactions to um, socially emotion-producing stimuli. And I became yeah. When I started uh, my graduate work at New Mexico State University with Walter Stefan, who, um, if you look him up, you'll see uh, intergroup anxiety as his one of his main areas, and certainly uh, intergroup threat theory um, is is one that comes through him. And I, I I was interested in a piece of that with our emotional reactions through intergroup threat and intergroup anxiety. So what's yeah. produced from that? And I did a series of studies um, looking at uh, different types of uh, really uh, basic research uh, reactions, uh, meaning uh, not very applied, but uh, kind of how do we react when we think as an individual versus a group member when we're threatened socially? That's fascinating because uh, um, one of the roles that I had was as a public order commander. So basically, uh, if there was a riot or a major public disorder disturbance and any major sporting event, um, I would be in charge of that. And we, we, we studied uh, group dynamics an awful lot in this almost animalistic culture that exists, that if you're wearing one colour shirt to compared to a different colour shirt, how you get all this, not so much tribal, but animalistic sort of pack behaviour. Well, absolutely. So um, I did a series of related studies early on looking at um, how um, Americans felt after 9-11 versus how you individually felt and, and priming it through video means and then also uh i was uh, uh i was just outside of high school after um it's gonna date me by the way um after uh, uh the columbine events and so how did students feel mm -hmm. collectively versus how an individual felt in in certainly those situations and um we we, we did physiological measures of emotion during the uh, the stimuli and uh, measured like uh, uh facial emotion reactions and so it's, it's a, it doesn't necessarily guarantee that's the emotion they're experienced, but through converging evidence and their own self-report um, and the physiological measures, uh, you get an idea of like, if you're threatened as a group member and your group can do something about it, you tend to be more angry. And the reactions after 9-11 mm -hmm. certainly saw that. If you're an individual and you can't do anything about it, you tend to be more fearful. Uh, and, and it produces anxiety, and both do, but really, if you can't do anything about it, it's, it's fear. And, and if we look back to um, people like Paul Ekman and their view of basic emotion, well, what's, um, okay, if you have a reaction of, of fear or anger, what does it motivate? Well, if it's fear, it's fight or flight, and I guess both produce that, but you tend to avoid the threat um, if you can't do anything about it. Um, and that's self-preservation, and then um, fight another day. Yeah. And, but if you're angry, you tend to aggress towards it. I mean, it certainly produce, produces the behavior motivation. Whether you do aggress, uh, you become aggressive or not, um, other factors come invo are involved, but certainly you have the behavioral intention of being more aggressive in those situations. Uh, and then uh, looking, expanding on, uh, looking even at, like not these very high, high profile events, uh, we looked at even uh, more interpersonal 
in individual versus group threat and found this idea. Yeah. Um, so fairly and fairly robust. I mean, you figure, yeah, if you're threatened as a group and your group can do something about it, you probably going to be more angry about it and potentially be aggressive. And did you find, Mark, I mean, you, you've clearly traveled all over because one of the reasons why I've struggled to get you on there, because you always seem to be in different countries. So you, you, you've seen the social interactions in many different cultures across many different countries. Do you find it changes in any one country or is this it, you know, this this whole sort of pack culture mindset? From research and looking at other other people's research, specifically um, like Lisa Feldman Barrett and and, the, and those who look at the constructionist views of emotion, uh, I think that's what what that means is you building emotion based on language and culture around you, um, and and using that to help make decisions. Certainly, um, but uh, having uh, each culture is going to vary based on the reaction to the same potentially same type of. Uh, emotion producing stimulus. Uh, I'll give an example. When I was in Portugal, um, so years ago, uh, uh, I met those from Portugal and those from Brazil and those from Angola. And so I'll, I'll speak Portuguese in varying levels. Their accents are very different. Um, and uh, it, much of their interaction and their, their spoken interaction about each other uh, had a lot to do with the economics of the situation. At the time, Brazil was doing very well, and, and Brazilians were vacationing in Portugal, and, and I caught language script about kind of animosity from the Portuguese to the Brazilians. And there were variations uh, between how they interacted with each other, um, specifically, um, well, my colleagues were all friends. They, someone from Portugal might make a comment towards the Brazilians and, and uh, uh, who may be vacationing there, uh, and, and then uh, some communication from those who are from Angola and Portugal commenting on uh, those from uh, from Portugal. Uh, and I, I use that as an example as a way that after you get past our visual, um, how we look, it is very much our accent. And so this is, this is kind of the direction I'm going. Our, how we speak is as much an indicator of who we are and, and potential um, behaviors uh, is is how we look. That's really interesting because, you know, you, so you could look at the United States and you could look at even England, a tiny little country like England, and we'll have what we often refer to as a north-south divide. Uh, and you know that our, ac ac our accents differ so much that if you live in the northeast to compare to if you live in maybe, you know, London, uh, and yet this north-south divide I was on a, a course over the weekend in London and somebody said to uh, somebody who, who also came on that course who's come from not too far from where I live. And he says, oh, you're northern, aren't you? And this guy said, no, I'm not northern. He said, I'm from the Midlands area of the UK, you know, something called the Midlands. And he said, no, he said, you're northern, you're northern to me. And he said, well, you know, everything north of London is northern. <laughs> and, and it, it you know, it's a bit of banter, really. But I guess in the U U.S. it's the same. You know, I, I hear I hear the banter between you know, somebody who might live on the East Coast compared to the West Coast, and you have these preconceived ideas, or somebody who lives in the North, somebody who lives in the South, or somebody who comes from Florida, etc., etc. So what you're saying is sometimes it's not about the 
think sometimes it is about the visual impact. And, you know, we, we, when we talk about diversity and inclusive inclusivity, sometimes it is about the, 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 the what we call the protected characteristics or the defining characters or the demographics, if you like, of uh, specific individuals that can be what puts you in this camp or that camp. But sometimes when you look exactly the same, but you sound different, it could be that, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, think of areas of the world where uh, an artificial line was drawn uh, years ago. The same people live there. Uh, and uh, whether it's the US or um, England or the Middle East or yeah. somewhere in Africa, a line was drawn that divided people that they couldn't interact anymore. And so inter uh, languages, the accent varied. And uh, that that accent became associated with uh, stereotypes. And yeah. some of the, I mean, those can be very harmful. And especially if it guides your interactions and emotions and how you deal with that individual or the individuals within that area. And, and so we have to be very mindful of, of those things. Uh, when we're using our, our heuristics, our, our, our kind of emotions more than logic for some of this stuff, if we've learned, if we've been taught, if we've experienced, um, and we're guided by those stereotypes about and the, those things, and you you encounter that emotion competent stimulus, uh, someone's language accent from a different area. And I'll, I'll make reference. I do not sound like many of the other Southerners here. Again, I'm from California, <laughs> uh, yeah. but uh, there there isn't a Southern accent. But that varies from Alabama to Georgia to Texas to of course Kentucky yeah. um, and the, those areas. So that it, the accent varies here, which is very different from New York and uh, New England and Minnesota and uh, New Mexico, where I went to graduate school. I mean, it, within in Las Cruces, New Mexico, where New Mexico State University is, the border used to be uh, right near there and it was moved. And at one point you were a citizen of Mexico and then you became a citizen of the U.S. because the border moved um, many, many years ago. And I saw many different um, overt forms of prejudice between those who were of Mexican descent in the U.S. versus those who were from Mexico. Yeah, I mean, in recent history, I recall when Germany was uh, unified uh, after all, so many decades of being segregated by the whole concept of East and West and the Berlin Wall. Uh, but I remember seeing videos of West Germans talking about East Germans and how they were so different and how it's really challenging and now they're one unified country. And I'm sure that sort of language still goes on there. But you're absolutely right. And it, I find it an interesting dem demographic, uh, uh, or sorry, an interesting discussion. And, um, and within all of that, emotions play a part. Within all of that. And it is understanding that the level that emotions sort of influence our lives and influence our thinking on a day-to-day -day basis. And from a leadership perspective, I think one thing that people can take away from this is that we should always be alive to the emotions that we are experiencing. And the thoughts that we have, we should challenge some of these thoughts and say, hey, where's that thought coming from? Is it coming from a basis of some level of emotion? And is that now driving me towards some kind of a bias? Uh, am I making quality decisions as a leader? I think all of these thoughts, and I know I'll be thinking about this, uh, this, this conversation uh, much later on, 
where I will be philosophizing around how better, how can I think better? How can I think with more quality? And, you know, uh, from this conversation, I would encourage every leader to be doing that, asking these really tough, powerful questions of yourself and digging down deep because, hey, leadership is not an easy journey. And leadership is a position of responsibility. Um, you know, they always say with great authority comes great responsibility. And that I have always believed in that. So if you want to be the very best leader that you want to be, then practice and, and you know, maybe re-listen to this podcast because there's so many nuggets of gold in there. Mark, I want to thank you very much for joining us today. I've really, really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please do subscribe and click on notifications for new content. And of course, connect with me on LinkedIn. Take care. Have a great day.